Hello, this is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Over the past several years, namely since the uh, results of the ARDSNet study, there's been a large emphasis placed uh, on the value of peak inspiratory pressure, which we often will say PIP in the ICUs. And what the data of the ARDSNet study showed was that by maintaining an adequate peak inspiratory pressure, uh, that we were able to reduce mortality in the management of ARDS. And I, I don't really want to get in this podcast as to what the findings of the ARDSNet data uh, are, but I really want to focus on that one particular value, and that's peak inspiratory pressure. For th- those residents that I have, they know that I'm, I'm kind of a a nut about physiology and I love equations and and part of the reason why I I enjoy physiology and the equations that are helped us to derive some of these numbers from both cardiovascular physiology and pulmonary physiology is they give us a better understanding of what is the result of that number and how the patient's pathophysiology, their disease uh, impacts that number and what can we do clinically to manage the patient to get us to a more desirable location, whether it's managing the stroke volume or their pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, or in this case, the PIP. Years back, we used to put a lot of emphasis on this notion of barotrauma. And the idea there is, is that if we uh, overventilate somebody with, with a too high of a peak inspiratory pressure, we could actually cause barotrauma. And barotrauma would be that we would damage the alveolus, uh, and this could result in complications such as pneumothoraces, pneumomediastinum, and adverse cardiovascular complications. As the literature progressed over the years, we saw less written about barotrauma and more written about volume trauma. The idea there is that, you know, the fact that the peak inspiratory pressure is measured feet away from the lung in the ventilator, that we can have somebody who could have potentially a normal peak inspiratory pressure uh, but cause overdistension of the alveolus, uh, and that overdistension of the alveolus can cause fracturing and a pro-inflammatory cascade. What's interesting when we look at ARDS, I, I like to tell our residents that ARDS is not a disease but a symptom of an underlying disease, whether it's abdominal sepsis, pneumonia, inhalation injury, or a variety of other conditions, but ARDS is not a standalone disease as we typically think of disease. The other thing that we learned that was interesting about ARDS was that in many cases, our management of the problem was as bad, if not worse, than the disease, and we actually aggravated the problem. So this brings us to this this concept of peak inspiratory pressure. And peak inspiratory pressure is something that is measured frequently on a mechanical ventilator, or breath-to-breath on a mechanical ventilator, and what are the elements of a peak inspiratory pressure? Well, I, I hate to, to do this because I don't have audiovisuals in the form of a podcast, but the formula, and you could write this down, but the form, and I'll actually put it on my website uh, at uh, burndoc.com, but the formula for peak inspiratory pressure is um, the tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and the thorax, and, and you have that one dividend. So, tidal volume over the compliance of lung and thorax. That dividend is added to the product of the resistance of the airway 
times the flow of the gas. So if you write that out over an equation, you would have total volume over C, compliance lung and thorax, plus parentheses, resistance R times Q, which stands for flow. Now, those variables can be changed to impact peak and stroke pressure. So, let's just take the first one, tidal volume. All parameters stay in the same. That if I increase somebody's tidal volume from 5 to 10 cc's per kilo, or to 15 cc's per kilo, I will see a progressive increase in the peak inspiratory pressure. Now, this is the example that we most commonly think about uh, in regards to impacting peak inspiratory pressure. And it is, in large part, I think, that this is the thinking behind that if we ventilate somebody at 5 to 7 cc's per kilo, uh, other than the fact that that's, the most, that's our physiological tidal volumes, that we're going to have a less negative impact in peak inspiratory pressure, and I would agree with that. Um, there have been animal studies that have shown um, that looking at, quote, barotrauma or volume trauma, where um, they increased the peak inspiratory pressures in excess of 40 centimeters of water, and ended up using things like 18 and 25 cc's per kilo uh, of total volume. And that's certainly you know, a very high total volume, and, and lo and behold, the animals had some difficulties. Um, and the idea is that if we keep our total volume low, and that 5 to 7 cc's per kilo, uh, that we will have a less negative impact on peak inspiratory pressure and a less negative impact on the lung, and hopefully a better improvement with ARDS. But let's take some time to look at these different variables. Um, total volume. We increase total volume, we increase peak and pressure. The, the denominator of that is compliance of lung and thorax. Now, since it is in the denominator, as we increase the compliance, we will see a decrease in the peak and pressure. But most of the disease processes that we're dealing with, they are decreasing the compliance of either the lung or the thorax. And, and again, remember, compliance is a change in pressure uh, over the change in, or change in pressure in relation to the change in volume. What are some things that will decrease compliance of, say, the thorax? Well, large volume resuscitations, uh, for instance. If a trauma patient comes in, they get 20, 30 liters uh, positive, or say an ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, that massive resuscitation will result in edema to the chest wall. Um, one of the more commonly encountered uh, acute changes in um, the uh, compliance of the bony thorax or the thorax in general occurs in the operating room where somebody may be working uh, in the upper abdomen and a um, um, medical student or an intern is kind of resting their arm or leaning on the thorax. And typically there, an anesthesiologist will stand up and, and say, are you leaning on the chest? And the reason why they know that is all of a sudden they'll see a change in pressures or total volumes because what you're doing is you're changing the compliance of the thorax. Now, in burn patients, which are the patients that I uh, care for in a daily situation, in addition to ongoing fluid resuscitation, uh, the development of chest wall eschars or circumferential eschars around the chest will result in a decrease in the compliance of the thorax. So at a given tidal volume, if we have the ventilator set at, say, 7 cc's um, uh, per kilo, and an eschar begins to kind of set up and tighten, that decreases the compliance of the thorax, what happens to my peak inspiratory pressure? My peak inspiratory pressure will rise. Does it change my alveolar dimension? Um, or the volume of the alveolus? No. 
Okay, there's a disconnect there. So the idea that if my peak inspiratory pressure goes from, say, 25 to 30 to 40 because of resuscitation and the eschgar kind of uh, tightening up and shrinking on, on the uh, uh, thorax, does that result in alveolar uh, overdistension? And the answer is no. Now, what's interesting about this is this is the reason why we do chest wall escherotomies in burn patients. And if you are managing a patient like this on a mechanical ventilator, either as an intensivist or a resident or a fellow or an anesthesiologist, and the patient's on, say, pressure control, uh, you need to be very careful as you make the chest wall, chest wall escherotomies. When we make escherotomies of the chest wall, why are we doing it? We are doing it to increase the compliance we're allowing that chest wall to expand by reduce, reducing the restriction of that eschgar. And by, by making the eschgarotomy, our compliance gets better. And then if the improvement of compliance are inversely related, our peak and pressure will go down. Now, um, if you have the patient set on pressure control and you increase the compliance, you'll see a marked spike in your tidal volumes. You need to be very careful of that. What are some other things that can reduce chest wall eschgarotomies? or should we uh, reduce chest wall uh, compliance. Well, if there's a lot of edema in the abdominal wall, if the diaphragm cannot move inferiorly, and you'd see this typically in somebody who has their upper abdomen packed, maybe they have ascites, maybe they've got uh, a gravid uterus, uh, maybe they have abdominal compartment syndrome. All those things will limit the downward excursion of the diaphragm. And what does that do to, to uh, the compliance that decreases it? What would that do to peak inspiratory pressure? It would increase it. What does it do to alveolar dimension? Basically, it can remain unchanged. Um, but that would be the reason why you would seek a peak inspiratory pressure. So, would your would your what would your play be on a critically ill patient in that circumstance? Would be thinking, okay, well, I've got you know I've got uh, titusitis, or I've got the abdomen packed, or maybe I'm dealing with abdominal compartment syndrome, and maybe it's time for a decompressive laparotomy. So in that circumstance, the treatment isn't so much treating the ventilator as it is treating the patient and looking for the underlying cause of the decrease of the thoracic compliance. Now, there are certain conditions, and namely ARDS is one of those, uh, namely those, that's going to decrease the compliance of the lung parenchyma. Uh, and again, by decreasing the compliance of the lung parenchyma, you will see an increase in the peak inspiratory pressure uh, and not um, so much an uh, increase in the alveolar dimension. So, let's review the first half of this equation of peak inspiratory pressure. We said that in the numerator, we had the tidal volume. And since it's in the numerator, increases in the tidal volume are directly related to increase in the peak inspiratory pressure. We have the tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and the thorax. So, since the, the compliance is in the denominator, that means the relationship between pulmonary and chest wall compliance is inversely related to the peak inspiratory pressure, meaning that an increase in compliance results in a decrease in the peak inspiratory pressure. And we said that some of the things that affect chest wall compliance would be things like edema, chest wall eschars, um, um, abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, blood in the abdomen, fluid in the abdomen, perhaps a gravid uterus, uh, anything that's going to restrict movement of the chest wall, even iatrogenic causes such as us leaning on an abdomen uh, or the like. Now, let's go to the second half of the equation. And we said we took that first dividend and we added it to the product 
Okay, so now we're multiplying things. The resistance of the airway and the flow of the gas. Let's talk um, the first part of that and resistance of the airway. Well, what are some of the things that will um, increase the resistance of the airway? So this is directly related. So an increase in airway resistance will result in an increase in peak inspiratory pressure. And in, contra and in contrast, a decrease in airway resistance will improve the peak inspiratory pressure. Well, when we're dealing with mechanical ventilated patients, perhaps the most likely and the most obvious source of airway resistance is the size of the endotracheal tube. Um, we like to provide the largest feasible size of endotracheal tube without causing injury to the patient. Um, now, why is that? Well, the smaller the endotracheal tube, the um, greater the resistance of, of flow to the gas. Now, um, this is going to get into uh, a formula called Pousset's Law. And Pousset's Law says that flow, it, basically the equation is delta P R to the fourth uh, over the product, over N um, times L. Now, let's break that down. Delta flow is is... is in the numerator of changes in pressure. So things are going to flow faster. Water will flow faster through a pipe based on, the, based on the change of pressure. So at one end of a pipe, I have 100 pounds per square inch, and at the other end of the pipe, I have zero pounds per square inch. Water will flow through that pipe much faster than if I have a second pipe, and at the start, I have 100 pounds per square inch, and I, at, the, at, at the end of the pipe, I only have 50 pounds per square inch. That change in pressure there is only 50, where my first pipe is 100. So that change in pressure will affect, affect the flow. That seems pretty obvious. Basically, the greater the change in pressure, the more steep the hill. Now, the next uh, variable in this is the radius of the vessel to the fourth power. Now, this holds true whether we're talking about central venous catheters whether we're talking about arteries, whether we're talking about flow of gas through a tube, such as an endotracheal tube, that the impact of the radius of that tube, of that vessel, is to the fourth power. Therefore, an increase in the radius has a profound increase in the flow. This is why we prefer 14-gauge peripheral IVs in adults for resuscitation lines over a 16 or an 18 gauge. It's not an improved uh, ability to flow blood or fluids through that line. It's a markedly improved, mathematically exponentially improved to the fourth power. That's dramatic. The other variables in the denominator uh, basically are n constant and, and the length of the tube. Um, and it was for this reason back, I think, a lot in the 80s, people did a lot of... Um, um, uh, trimming of endotracheal tubes. I don't, I don't know if that goes on anymore. Uh, I think it's perhaps a, a dangerous practice. Uh, that's my my biased opinion. I don't have any science for that, but I think whenever you modify um, tubes, uh, you, you assume some liabilities that you really don't want to assume. Um, but R to the fourth. So uh, now flow is inversely related to resistance. So all that turned out upside down. You have the formula for resistance. So that's the biggest impact. So you're gonna if you have uh, if you're ventilating somebody through a 602 versus an 802 tube, the person with the 602 tube is going to have the higher peak inspiratory pressure. Same ventilator settings, same lung. Alveolar dimensions would, would they, the alveolar dimensions be any different? 
Probably not. Uh, so though the PIP would go up, you're not going to see a change in alveolar dimension. So if you're managing a patient, for instance, they're a burn patient, they were difficult intubation in the field or, or in the emergency department, and they come into the 6-0 tube, and they're sick, and they're on a ventilator, and the respiratory therapist is telling you our peak inspiratory pressures are hitting 45, you need to be doing some calculus in your head thinking, okay, well, how can I prove this? Let's drop the tidal volume from, say, 8 cc's per kilo to 5 cc's per kilo. Well, that would certainly do it based on what we've told you by these equations, but is that the right play? Is there something else I should do? Perhaps changing out the endotracheal tube from a 6 to an 8 would do what? It would decrease my resistance of the airway and also decrease my peak inspiratory pressure. Um, uh, other elements that can cause this, airway edema. Uh, airway edema will cause increased resistance because the radius of the the, the airway is obviously small. The same is in play here for the endotracheal tube. Turbulent flow uh, will also uh, basically increase airway resistance. There's a trick that we use in burns to basically temporize an airway. It's also used in people who might have severe asthmatic attacks or people who have epiglottitis, and that's the concept of heliox. And heliox is fascinating because what I'll tell people is that when you're using heliox, a lot of what you're doing is basically lubricating the gas. Um, the Navy learned uh, that when you did deep sea diving, having somebody breathe through a long uh, tube, in the case of deep sea diving, created a lot of difficulties in that diver being able to breathe because as the air went through that long tube, it created a lot of airway resistance. So the Navy's solution to this um, was that they mixed the oxygen with helium. And when you mixed the oxygen with helium, this improved what we called laminar flow. And for those of you who took high school physics, we would remember that when you look at water going through a vessel, that it moves basically in what's called laminar flow, and that on the sides of the, the river or the vessel, you get increased resistance, and that creates turbulent flow, and, and, and by mixing the oxygen with helium, you're reducing that turbulent flow um, and improving the laminar flow, and that's reducing airway resistance. So that's one element that you could perhaps do. You wouldn't do that in somebody who's mechanically ventilated, but you would certainly consider doing that in somebody who is having some airway issues and you're trying to temporize them until you control the airway or basically treat the patient. Uh, so that's where we're at with uh, airway resistance. Um, now, the other factor in this is the flow of the gas. Now, this is the, the part that I find that most people have a really difficult time understanding. And I see uh, a lot of folks, when they're dealing with a very sick patient on a ventilator, really totally ignore the idea of flow of gas when they're trying to manage somebody's peak inspiratory pressure. Now, flow of gas is basically how fast we put the, the gas of a, of a particular tidal breath or tidal cycle into a patient, basically in, in the units is volume per time. So typically we're talking about liters per minute. 
Now, we have to think that under a normal circumstance, you and I are breathing. We have, this is where we get into our eye times, or inspiratory times, and our expiratory times. And our eye to E ratio is typically in a normal spontaneously breathing patient about one to three. Now, for the sake of this discussion, we're going to make the math easy. And we're going to say that our mechanically ventilated patient is breathing with an eye to E time, or an eye to E ratio of one to one. Okay, and we're going to say initially that they are breathing on a set rate of 10 breaths per minute on the ventilator, and they've got an IDE ratio of 1 to 1. Now, if they're breathing 10 breaths per minute, okay, that means that their entire cycle time, the time for inhalation and exhalation, is 6 seconds. How did I come to that? 60 seconds, 10 breaths per minute, 6 seconds per breath. Okay, and then six seconds per breath means in and out. Now, we said that the I time is one and the E time is one. So that means half of that is inspiration and half of that is expiration. So three seconds is inspiration, three seconds is expiration. And to make this example more easy, let's say that we're giving the patient a total volume of a liter. Okay, liter per breath. And these, this is, I, nobody's giving anybody a liter per breath. Don't send me emails. But... Uh, about me overventilating patients, but just for the sake of this example. So they're getting, basically, one liter of gas is going into that patient over three seconds. So if I were to ask you what the flow rate is of the gas during that particular inhalation period, what you would do is you would have one liter over three seconds, and you multiply that by 60 seconds per minute, and you get approximately, or basically 19.99 liters, or 20 liters per minute. Okay? So one that one breath of flow is twenty liters per minute if you give somebody one liter over three seconds. And this is with a set rate of ten breaths per minute. Now let's take the same patient, same ventilator, and let's keep the total volume still at a liter, but let's take the rate from say ten breaths per minute to fifteen breaths per minute. So our cycle time here, again, we're still one-to-one -one on our IDE ratios, is 60 divided by 15, and that gives you roughly four seconds per cycle. We said our IDE ratio is one-to-one, -one, and that means now that our inspiratory time is now two seconds. So when our rate was 10, our inspiratory time was three seconds, and now when our rate is 15, our inspiratory rate is two seconds. Now, what is that impact on the flow during inspiration. Well, the math there is that we're giving one liter over two seconds, and we multiply that by 60 seconds per minute. And now our flow rate on inspiration is 30 liters per minute. So keeping all things equal, we had the same patient, same in the tracheal tube. What we did was we same total volume. Uh, we're on a volume control mode of ventilation, and we increased our uh, rate from from 10 to 15, and by doing that, we increased our flow rate from 20 to 30 liters per minute. Basically, increased our flow rate by 50% just by increasing the rate. So, that the idea behind that demonstration is to show you that as you're increasing the total volume, or excuse me, as you're increasing the rate, you're increasing the flow, and that's going to increase your PIP. Just by going from a rate of 10 to 12, what would be the impact on your PIP? It should go up. 
If you go from a rate of 10 to 15, what should be the impact of your PIP? It should go up. Why? Because your flow rate is going up as you're increasing the rate. Now, can we manipulate that flow rate in order to keep our PIP more acceptable? And, of course, the answer is yes. Because and this is where we get into um, um, adjusting our I times and our E times. So, as I've said earlier... Uh, typically, we have our IDE ratio set to 1 to 3. So if we had, say, a rate of... So if we have a patient set up on a rate of 10, liter, or 10 breaths per minute at a liter total volume, and again, we only have this set up as an example, and they actually have a more physiological IDE ratio of 1 to 3, then let's do that math. That means then that the cycle time is 6 seconds because it's... 60 seconds divided by 10 breaths per minute, so it's 6 seconds per breath. The IDE ratio is 1 to 3, so the actual inspiratory time is 1.5 seconds, which means that the flow rate for that 1 liter breath is 90 liters per minute. 90 liters per minute. And we started the example by showing you a rate of 10, but a 3 second I time. By, by taking it from a 1 to 3 to a 1 to 1. And by taking it to a 1 to 1, we were able to take our eye time from 1.5 to 3 seconds, and then that resulted in a 20 liter per minute flow rate. So you can see that by manipulating that I to E ratio, you're going to impact your inspiratory flow rates, and your inspiratory flow rates then have an impact on your peak inspiratory pressure. Not a very easy topic to discuss on a podcast in the absence of audiovisuals and be able to show you the calculations and, and the actual formulas. But let's just suffice it to say that there are basically four variables, really five variables that impact the peak inspiratory pressure. And for years and all too often every day in the ICU, we focus just on the one, and that's the, the tidal volume. But remember, the formula for peak inspiratory pressure is tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and the thorax plus the product of resistance of the airway times the flow of gas. Therefore, the variables that you can impact include tidal volume, compliance of the thorax, compliance of the lung, resistance of the airway, and the flow of the gas. And all of those can be used to manipulate your peak inspiratory pressure. Um, that is uh, the conclusion of, of this um, talk. I appreciate your patience on a, a podcast, which is perhaps a little bit more difficult than most because it's uh, my uh, website is burndoc.com, and uh, on there there's educational materials and so forth that we use for our, our house staff. Um, and a way to get a hold of me, I appreciate the feedback we're getting. I, I get a lot of great ideas for uh, a lot of uh, good podcasts. We're using them as uh, time allows. Also on there is a link uh, to our pharmacology textbook, which the publisher tells me is being released in March. Uh, and we hope that uh, that actually uh, hits the delivery date this time. Uh, thanks for listening. My name is Jeff Guy. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. Have a great day.